Welcome back to ICU Life and Recovery. My name is Mark and I am the host and I am back with this episode as promised with Dr. Julie Highfield and today we're going to talk about delirium. So Julie, I would like you to define what delirium is to, to you as a professional psychologist. Okay, I guess the official line of delirium is that it's an acute confusional state. Obviously, the two main subtypes, although you can have a mixed type of the agitated hypoactive delirium or a hyperactive delirium, get it the right way around, or the kind of more withdrawn hypoactive active delirium. Those are the, the official line on it. I guess in terms of how I think of it, one of our consultants said you should think of it as a temporary brain injury. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about it in terms of just the way it affects people's understanding of the world and their ability to kind of process information and take in information. I also think about it as almost the equivalent of our body's fight or flight in action but manifest through these kind of perceptual differences so I kind of I always think what kind of ICU patient would I be would I be the fighter who would get quite agitated and would pull at things because I believe that I'm unsafe and would my mind go to some of the paranoid things that I've heard delirious patients say or would I be the retreat would I be the flight where I'd withdraw to protect myself because I felt unsafe and because I believed that people around me were kind of trying to do me harm so I, if I could shrink into myself I would feel that so I, I guess for me as a psychologist I kind of think about delirium as the kind of almost the manifestation of that through but with those altered perceptions of the ICU world. Okay so my definition is slightly different. My first definition is my ICU delirium which everybody sort of knows about. It's the thing that I talk about the most. It was the single worst time of my life where I felt like I had experienced seven years worth of life in the three weeks that I was in a coma, that I was in an extreme state of danger, that I was being tortured, I was being hunted down, there was extreme harm to me, and everything was at a 10. Every, uh, there was no lulls, there was no calm times, it was constant fear, constant danger, and constant you know, state of terror. And is a, a terrible experience. And because of the nature of the ICU and the procedures and the stimulus that's happening to the body, quite a lot of the time, these are extremely traumatic experiences. So like getting tortured or having been experimented on are not uncommon themes in the ICU delirium setting. And so if people were experiencing these traumas, in the real world, they would have massive effects of that trauma psychologically. If these things were experienced in reality, we would not be surprised that people would have depression, that they would have PTSD, that they would have anxiety, that they would have safety issues, that they would have concerns about being in danger, about confidence issues. But because these things don't happen in reality or they're unseen, we often don't appreciate the full devastation that it can cause. And I would say that my ICU delirium is at the top end of the delirium spectrum in terms of its severity. Uh, we, we can't measure severity of delirium yet, but I would say it was quite severe. I had quite long lasting effects on my psychological makeup in terms of the trauma left me with anxiety that's six years is now still 
here. The PTSD has been treated, but it never really feels like it's a way. It just feels like it's just been held back and it's waiting to for some other trauma to burst it back open. And at that, that end of the spectrum, uh, you've got that. And then more towards the sort of bottom end of the severity, you have my perioperative delirium experience, which was I have a condition called hydrogen titus superativa, which is the sort of forming or blocking of the sweat channels and the skin cells that happens at various areas where there's high friction. For me, it's my armpits and they form large, extremely painful, almost abscesses. So when I had this, I was in acute pain uh, and I got taken into hospital and I could feel the slow descent of my control of my memory and my brain being pulled away from me. I could slowly feel my inhibitions being reduced and seeing things and doing things that wouldn't normally be me. I wasn't belligerent. I wasn't hyper agitated or any of the sort of real keys of of hyperactive delirium. I was very obnoxious. I was out of characteristically obnoxious. But in that experience, I had already had my ICU experience. So I knew what was happening to me. So I had to intervene. I got pictures on my iPad of my family and started telling myself who they were. I kept looking at the clock to make sure that I knew what time it was. I kept reminding myself where I was. And I felt that by the time I was getting taken down to surgery to be operated on, that I wasn't right, but my memory, things were becoming clearer. They were becoming less treacly. And that's how I always think of it. It's like you're thinking in treacle as if you were walking in it. It's very slow and very monotonous, but I started to feel that that was just starting to clear away because I knew even in that state, I knew that if I let the delirium go on and I got sedated for surgery, I was going to be worse when I came out because sedation is never, it never helps the situation, whether it be in the ICU or anywhere else. Sedation doesn't seem to help delirium. It seems to just quiet people down and make it worse in the long term. So those are my definitions of delirium, if you will, from my experience. And as you'll be able to hear and everyone else will be able to hear, they're very different in them. Obviously, you're using very clinical language and I'm using very emotional language from the from my experience. So I just like to look at how can we make it so that the definition matches more the experience and why are the experiences different? I And I guess what I would and add to that, not to take away from the horrible experiences you have had and then the devastating knock-on psychological impacts. But I guess the problem is with making the definition match the experience is I've met people who said my delirium experience was that a famous footballer washed my hair. And I've met people whose delirium experience has been that nurse stole my wallet. And I've met people whose experience has been, I've been on a a kind of sailboat for 30 days. So the the problem is, I know it's old fashioned language, but I I can see why we used to call it ICU psychosis, because in some ways that idea of kind of emphasising that there is a mismatch between what's really happening and what you're experiencing without trying to define 
what you're experiencing is key because that spectrum of the perceptual difference and change is so huge. That said, I think if we were to define the negative delirium experience, which is more common, to be fair, you know, there's there's not a lot of footballers washing hair on ICU, or at least not where I work. Yeah, that would be a nice thing. Don't worry about the therapy dogs. Let's just bring in the footballers instead. But I think if we were to define it, I think, you know, coming back to that fight or flight thing that I talk about, is it feels like part of it in part is a body defense mechanism because it feels like a common theme that people have is that they are somehow unsafe or under attack in some way and it manifests in all sorts of different ways but it leads to the very common delirium experience of paranoia and and there's something about that kind of the feeling that people are out to get you that you're unsafe that needs to be part of that understanding I think It's then when we understand, in in a way, coming back to that first point of why is it that people don't take this seriously? But I can, and I guess by people, it's maybe people in the general public, but also some of the more generic mental health services don't take it seriously. And, And that's a big question for me as well, because I think, well, if you look at other experiences where you've become detached from reality, but your belief has been very strong that you're under attack or something bad is going to happen to you, etc., that does happen in people's you know first onset psychosis and those sorts of things. Actually, people understand that that's psychologically damaging for people, that that's very real for people. So just because it's brought on by the disease process or the infection process or, you know, the biochemistry that's behind sedation and the way it affects our sleep-wake cycle, actually, just because the cause is different doesn't mean that the effects aren't the same. And certainly the psychological experience doesn't have those kind of similar qualities. I guess the short answer is it's complicated, isn't it? Like all these things. Yeah, so I think... Having experienced two different types of delirium in that the ICU experience is very different from from the other perioperative experience and from things like pinch me where there's, you know, pain, infection, nutrition, Mm -hmm. hydration, constipation, malnutrition, no malnutrition, yeah, malnutrition and electrolytes. How can all of these very different things all cause the same thing are we perhaps looking at an umbrella of many different conditions which depending on causes and severities of causes happen to just be a similar experience but not the same Uh, Yeah, I get you. And I I guess off recording, we started talking about the different phenotypes of delirium. And I I think you're right. But I think look at it in the same way. You know, if you look at the perceptual experience and the range of perceptual experiences, okay, if you looked at, at that perceptual alteration in the same way, we look at breathlessness. But breathlessness is caused by so many different things and I guess it's the same kind of thing isn't it we call it delirium and we talk about ICU delirium but actually we know that several factors can cause it and this is one of the you know the poor job of the the bedside nurse and the medical team kind of trying to help this patient out of delirium is trying to work out what can we change to make the experience different and, and to help this person emerge from this experience new 
good memory went through the pinch me as as a whole range of kind of possibilities. But what if you have two or three of those things going on at any one time? And what if that changes over a 24, 48 hour period? And that that's the reality. That's why patients are in the ICU, because they're complicated and unwell in that way. And I, I think that that's a tricky thing, isn't it? I think there's also, you know, you have perioperative delirium. What is kind of similar about that is that kind of pain. I do wonder if there's possibly some infection from the way you described your condition as well. But there's also that anticipation and then the effects of sedation. So there are things that we are doing to people's bodies and there are things that that people's bodies will go through that are common experiences to lead to these perceptual disturbances and confusion. But yeah, many different roads lead to Rome. Well, yes. But in, in terms of it, is it that the brain is is so fragile in, in its in its existence that these things that cause chemical imbalances in your brain, either through sort of damage waste product crossing the brain barrier pathway or electrochemical imbalances, whether you're electrolytes or other substances, is the brain so susceptible to these things? Is that why? maybe the range of things are causing the effects, similar effects. It's not, although I'm a psychologist, that the kind of neurochemistry behind this isn't my absolute field of expertise. But I guess the, the reality is, is there are many things that can alter our perception, aren't there? And obviously you, you list a couple of things that go wrong, but pathogens and things that go wrong with the brain but look at actually lots of experiences of inducing hallucinations for pleasure and you know experience of kind of LSD and and kind of hallucinogenic mushrooms and things like that there are different things that people can do to create those perceptual disturbances in our brain so I, I would actually not call it fragile I would say we're good at it actually we're very very good at perceiving lots of differences in reality. I think just to throw a slight curveball in here, we think about how the human brain works when it when we would say it's functioning on a good kind of average day-to-day level, yet you will see two, three people can be in an experience and describe it differently. And there might be crossover, but there will be differences as well. And those differences are based on, you know, the angle of perception, but who they are and their life experiences and their frame of reference for these things. You know, a bit a bit like sort of trying to sway your kind of political kind of persuasions and, and that sort of thing. Actually, we come at it from different mindsets. So I think as human beings, we are really, really good at perceiving our own reality the key is going back to your experiences the problem in the ICU is that altered reality that people perceive is often nasty and threatening and horrifying and terrifying and I I guess that is the key thing is we're good at at perceiving altered reality but one of the key things that sedation does to us is it affects the part of our brain and the the part, part of our sleep where our brain lays down memories and can reality test and that's a key thing that is is the kind of knock-on effect of what we do to patients to keep them safe in the ICU from a medical point of view we alter their reality testing systems so it feels like one 
ICU stay can create and cause delirium, but also ICU treatment impacts on the ability to actually unravel and unpack delirium really quickly. And for some people, that knock-on effect of that reality never quite being able to be tested and the lingering after effects of the reality of that terror, like, as you say, can last for years for some people. Yeah, I think also perhaps in the ICU experience of delirium, why it's so strongly polarised to to the negative end of the experience is that quite often you're you're sedated and sort of your main senses are are dulled to the to, to the experience and and you have paralyzing agents as well so some for some patients they can't move and you're still getting well for for most patients that are are ventilated certainly mm-hmm. if they're sedated to allow the ventilator to work but if you are having these dulled experiences of your your vision and and other things being restricted and you still have the experience of touch and you're having arterial lines put in your wrists, you're feeling cuts, you're having central lines placed where your your things are getting put in you, cut open, you know, if you're like me with ARDS, you're having that sensation of fluid building up in your lungs, which is very similar to what you would feel if you were being waterboarded, which is part of the sort of torture regime. So you can kind of see these procedures that you're doing are having an effect on the experience. And I think that we need to be more aware, and it seems very simple, but you need to be more aware that everything you do affects that experience of the patient. And talking and things like this, you need to be, although they might not, remember hearing you those things might have a prolonged effect in the in the experience of the, the person and that the only person I don't have a negative experience of from my delirium was the nurse who spoke to me constantly told me what was going on told me why they were doing it and and he was the only member of staff who wasn't on the the bad guy team who wasn't on the torturers who wasn't on the the people that were hunting me down he he was the only he wasn't he wasn't a good guy but he was a neutral so that's about as good as I could get and I think it's very important that we don't get to get that sort of dentist experience where everyone is talking over the top of of a patient and think and, and kind of thinking that they are they're not taking it in because everybody knows when they're at the dentist the dentist has got his hands or her hands in your mouth and they're talking about where they're going on holiday and what what they're doing and oh that's a nice song in the radio and you feel very much like you are completely detached from from what is happening and we need to be very aware of of the outcomes of what is being done and it's very simple I think because I think Quentin who is the nurse I was talking about it was just standard practice for him. It was just how he did his job and he does his job very well. I, I don't, not to dig at him, I don't think he does his job practically any better than any of the other nurses. This seems to be the only thing that was different. And, and it seems like he always has, everybody remembers him and everyone has a positive experience of him. And, and that's the only thing that I can identify that he does differently from everyone else. And it, it seems like such a simple thing that we could do that would change 
simple, simple thing on, on their end, big impact on our end as the patients. I, and I, I hear you and I, I completely agree. And then I put it in the context of the work that they do. And I, I think there's something about it is a simple thing and it is really important. But I do think that staff know it and forget. And I think staff, sometimes the ICU get so busy that they can't help. They need to. It's part of working safely to talk over each other. I think also there's something about they can feel so full on with work that their connections with each other and saying, oh, what did you do at the weekend? And they just slip into those modes because it's part of their social connection. So I, I I hear what you're saying and I completely agree, but I can also hear the kind of the reasons why they might forget as well. I do think it's worth kind of, you know, if people are out there listening to this, reminding people that you don't have, you can be like Quentin, you don't have to be amazing at this. It's just that there is something about that gentle, just not running commentary, but that kind of, this is what we're doing this is happening next, that basically interferes with the gap that your brain, the the brain of the patient will just invent, you know, the the brain of the patient won't go, oh, yes, that would be that arterial line. The the brain of the patient will think, you know, something's bitten me, you know, something's being kind of placed inside my body. What is it? What is it? Straight into that fear threat, fight or flight. Whereas the soothing nurse voice can come in and say, this is nothing to worry about. We're doing this because of this. You'll feel this. It's okay. You're safe. These kinds of things are little, but they make a massive difference. And I, I think that's a key thing for, for people out there listening to hear in terms of simple stuff you can do to change your practice. Because ultimately, because we're really good at picking up on bits in the environment and stitching together and creating a story we we kind of join the dots to see a pattern that isn't there basically and we create a reality in our head unless people give us more dots unless people tell us this is the pattern that you should be seeing and I think that that's a key thing to try and remind people of but forgive them for sometimes forgetting I don't think it's necessarily that people talk over it's that the they get into a state where they don't necessarily engage with the patient it's not the it's not an either or situation it's a we have to remember to engage with the patient which i i get that when someone is sedated and intubated it's very easy to forget that they're their, their, their sort of awareness is higher than you might think and it's very easy with a still body in a bed yeah to forget because you know that if there's no reciprocal engagement it's very hard because it becomes very much like a monologue uh and and yeah. i ha- i have I have spoken many a monologue in my life and it gets quite hard <laughs> after a while but um and- And it's a 12-hour monologue Hmm. as well. And I I think what I have 
witnessed, especially in kind of younger, newer nurses, is it feels a bit socially embarrassing and awkward if you're on the ICU and you're the nurse that's chatting, chatting, chatting away to your patient and others aren't, you know, and I, I've had before now, I've actually had people say to me, oh, why did you bother chatting to them? They can't respond to you. So, so they, they can be. And then I've kind of felt like, oh, oh, I'm the daft one a little bit, just for that split second before you correct yourself. And you're like, no, no, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty experienced now. I've done this for a while now. I get less embarrassed by these things but I think that's that's the thing it needs it needs everyone to be doing it and it to be the norm but I guess to reassure the people out there it doesn't have to be a 12-hour monologue actually and you know certainly especially if there's any active brain injury we don't want to overstimulate a patient either and over kind of drilling information into their head because you could imagine that the new delirium experience might be a swarm of bees because of constant chatter or something like that you know you you could you could turn it that other way so I, I guess just like we titrate medications we can titrate our communication but that connection that little and often, but that stepping forward, but then allowing a little bit of space. I think that that's key. No, no one wants a 12-hour one-way conversation. I think the kind of key rule of thumb, at least in my head, is if you're touching or doing something to the patient, you should be talking. Um, yeah. And I think, I think everyone can understand. If I came up and grabbed you, you would react in an a negative startled or, or or you would reflex to that so just because you've taken away every ability to perform that reflex physically doesn't mean that the brain has lost its ability to interpret that as danger and it will inter- interpret it as danger unless there's a reason not to interpret it as danger and a key part of the technique for that is to also talk before you touch And when you start with that touch, to start with the back of the hand, because it's that back of the hand that's the least kind of startle response. So start with the back of the hand and just say, hi, it's Judy, I'm your nurse for today. I'm just going to let you know, I'm just going to touch your face now. Or I'm just going to, I'm going to do this, that, the other. Actually, as I even hear myself saying it, I remember a nurse who was a patient on the ICU and I spoke to her afterwards and she said, never use the words just or only because for you it's just only for me it's devastating and particularly that for awake patients hearing the line just a little cough when you've got a tube going down into your lungs to bring up all sorts of gunk is it's never just a little cough and I certainly I both of us you and I today Mark have got a little bit of a cough I wouldn't want someone to come along and suction me no really (laughs) so I, I think language is quite key but yeah with that touch and starting starting with the the safest of touch I guess what I would add in at this point is I uh, you know not notwithstanding kind of delirium experience but we do know in terms of the the research that's out there is people who have prior negative experiences are more likely to have a more impactful delirium experience and the reality is is when a patient arrives on the ICU they don't come with an awful lot of information about them and even if you've talked to the relative the relative might not necessarily know or be willing to share 
any kind of uh, psychological or trauma history. And I, I, I would say treat everyone like they've had a trauma history. Actually, as a general rule of thumb, treat everyone like they've got an exaggerated startle reflex. So that you're gentle, gentle, gentle with everyone. And I, I think that's sometimes something that pe- people get out of the habit of doing because it's their day to day. And they, they've done it for 36 hours already that week. Yeah. Um, I've, lo- I've completely, I had something there and I've completely lost <laughs> the train of thought on my brain again. And it's, it's really annoying when this happens, but this is, this is ICU life. Uh, unfortunately, the brain will not always hold on to things. Yeah, I think you should always assume the worst in terms of these things, because if you assume they have a catastrophic response, you're never going to overdo it in terms of causing a traumatic incident. I think being slow in your sort of approach to things is never terrible. Obviously, this this doesn't apply to when there's an emergent situation, uh, obviously this is this is just routine uh, care, and uh, and if things need to be done quickly, then they need to be done quickly, and let's just deal with the aftermath after it. But um, I think it's it's always interesting to hear, like you said, you, there was a nurse that had experienced ICU from the other side, uh, mm-hmm. and I always find it quite interesting hearing from these people because I always think it gives them much more context because now they understand the sort of full view of it. Uh, and I, th- I think these people are really helpful in, in kind of clearing up their understanding because when I'm talking from my side, I am very much an outsider. Um, I, I very much don't, I, I don't know what it's like to work a 12-hour shift in, in ICU. Um, I know what it's like to be three weeks in that bed but there's a sort of disconnect there. And I know, obviously, I started really as a speaker for Delirium, and then I've been pulled back to ICU. But when I was initially starting to speak about Delirium, I spoke to Dr. Needham, who is a mm. ICU consultant in Johns Hopkins, uh, the adult side. He provided me with a lot of literature on Delirium at that point, and I digested it because I wanted to understand what the medical view or what the healthcare view was, what, why why were things the way they were? Why why were things done the way they were? Because I, I could talk and I could suggest things and I could be this person, but without any context to, to why things are done that way, there might be a reason why we can't do that. So I had to kind of understand these things. And I think we really need people that have experienced both sides of it to be much stronger advocates and I understand and I know that not everyone wants to do that not everyone is capable of doing that which is a more important thing I I am very fortunate in that apart from the impairments that you've just heard in my loss of thoughts I am relatively intact and I you know my brain was pretty good sounds very arrogant was pretty good to start with so have a capability of of assessing things uh, and a a very scientific brain which allows me to sort of analyze these things aseptically from the experience but yeah we need to we need to try and draw on these experiences as much as we can because they they can can combine the situations together and and I, i think would have a bigger impact than than people just like me (laughs) yeah 
no, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think, you know, the more stories we get out there, the more real it becomes in terms of staff knowing just the basic things they can do that are not terrifying, that are relatively straightforward, that could make an impact. I guess one thing I, I would say is I'm, I'm aware that there is so much for an ICU nurse to learn. And delirium is just one of those many things, so many things to kind of hold in your mind. But I think, you know, delirium is is a sort of thread that runs through all elements of ICU experience. And it's one of the most common things that I see. I guess there is something on the other side of things where, you know, staff realise that in order to, not to be dramatic, but save a life, they have to do some pretty brutal things to that person's body and I think that's a tough thing for people to to realize that they're they're doing that and I think sometimes some people are cautious about engaging with delirium stories and understanding kind of psychological impacts of ICU because they have this fear that they're just going to be reminded of all the brutal things that they have to do but they feel that they have no choice and I guess I would come back to that point or we kind of made a little bit earlier of despite the things that are necessary from a medical point of view to help that body, the way in which we deliver that treatment, if we deliver it with care and consideration, we can massively reduce the psychological burden. And it comes back to, if you think of delirium is the way that patients experience threat in the ICU, then the staff are the key to making patients feel safe. And that's a key thing, I think. I think unless things significantly change, and I know a good friend of mine, um, Dr. Hyde, uh, not Dr. Uh, Dr. Lindroth, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's how bad my brain is buggled. Uh, Dr. Lindroth, who has also been on, she is a nurse researcher into delirium and she says she wants to eliminate delirium. I am a more a more sceptical view of it. I, I don't think, unless something significantly advances or changes, that we can eliminate delirium from ICU. I don't think it's possible. I think we can get it to a place where it's not everybody gets delirium where we can get it to where delirium is not common that should be our our realistic goal and and you know everybody wants delirium to be nowhere in the hospital we all want delirium to be a thing that's it's a a page in medical history books about this condition that existed but the realist in me says well that's not happening uh, unless we change something massively in medical science that eliminates all these risks that we have in practicing healthcare uh, mm-hmm. in, in the way that we do. So I think that the best we can do is reducing the risks that exist in the ICU world just because it's ICU, you know, the sedations and the sedating people as little as we need to be safe and not sedating people who don't need sedation and making sure pain's managed and making sure hydration's levels are fine and electrolytes and just balance these things that we need to balance. Mm-hmm. And in certain ICUs, it seems to be that it is possible to get levels down to a, a level where I think something must have been wrong with the numbers. When I see some of them, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. How can we be so far apart? But yes, I think that should be our goal. I think that no delirium is a pipe dream. I'm sure Heidi will tell me about 
about me pulling her out. Um, but with her being optimistic, I mean, I, I guess for me, I do think that delirium is quite probable in certain kinds of conditions. However, I think my my kind of version of that dream is early intervention and delirium minimization. I think, you know, if you've had a hypoxic brain injury, you're probably going to have delirium. But if we can pick up on it quickly, do things in the environment quickly to help that person, then we can minimise the distress. And it's the distress that comes with it that is key. I think if you've got delirium that's, you know, due to an underlying infection, then you really need to be targeting the infection. And then the delirium or, or lack thereof will follow. I guess a key thing, a key factor, especially in bigger busier ICUs is staff consistency. And I think sometimes what happens is delirium prolongs because of the way in which the patient's plan is handed over. And I think things like having kind of a consistency of medical handover or having the same medic for several days in a row makes a difference. For that, I think things like electronic systems rather than paper systems make a difference for that as well. And I I think, you know, obviously kind of just making sure delirium is on the page in terms of delirium monitoring and making sure that that's informing because some of these places that say they have no delirium is because no one does a CAM ICU. Um, So what you've got is probably lots of hypoactive delirious patients who just look like very, very, very compliant patients but they're all locked into their own world of delirium potentially etc so um so yeah for, for me the dream is early intervention prevention where possible but definitely early intervention another thing that's been rattling around in my brain is if i see a nurses like they've got lots of things to think about the multi-system managements and you know ventilator controls and things like that do we need to pull delirium out of their job and have a delirium nurse, a nurse who is a specialist, because at our hospital, we had a a delirium nurse who primarily worked in the dementia side of things, but would pulling that out and having a nurse who is an expert in delirium at, at identifying it and suggesting interventions, taking that responsibility out of everybody's and just have one person whose job is constantly floating to manage these things, would that bring more consistency? It would obviously have to be more than one, particularly in, in any situation, but yeah. would that take burden off of the sort of normal, well, not normal bedside, but but would allow a more consistent level of intervention and level of treatment or I mean, it's it's an idea. I guess with all of these things, uh, I can imagine that nurse pushback of I like to hold everything and I I know my patient best. So that that kind of not wanting yet another because I see you as full of visiting professionals. But then on the other side of things, I think there's something about this. There's so much to know, as you say, and not everything floats everyone's boat. And I would say a series of delirium champions. We certainly went that way a little bit before, but that kind of then those people kind of move on, et cetera, and they, they don't maintain. So we really want to maintain that kind of delirium 
group, if you like. My fear, if I'm honest with you, as an ICU psychologist, I guess what I used to describe my job as the delirium job because it felt like I was the only person holding it for a while. And I, I feel the burden of that and feel like you're kind of pushing against others. So that that would be my fear for anyone in that designated role is that then other people assume that they don't have to look out for it because someone else is doing it for them. So there's a few sort of swings and roundabouts with that. But I think the way forward is to have key champions in each area and have more people be delirium aware, supporting others who are less delirium yeah, aware. So I wasn't thinking about them being like a roaming person. I was thinking of having them in the target areas of ICU, your dementia areas, your elderly care areas. And I know I mean within just ICU. I, I guess just, just to put it in context, you know, my unit is a medium sized unit, 35 beds, 400 staff, 270 of which are nurses, one delirium nurse going around 35 beds twice, three times a day. That, after a while, you're going to burn out in that job, I think, just like any of these kind of specialist roles. But that sounds like a numbers issue. When I, when I said a delirium nurse, I didn't mean that every unit in the world should have one delirium <laughs> nurse. You would have to find a scale, but they're all, I'm only speaking of what I experienced of, of the nurse there, they're also responsible for the education on delirium as well. So they're kind of part of reinforcing that as well so it's not it's not delirium is just their job it is they're keeping on top of what the sort of current practices are and then making sure that it's it i you know i don't know it, it probably would be some people's cup of tea but whether there would be enough people that would be interested in doing it i don't know yeah um but Considering there's only two delirium nurses in Scotland, probably not would be the suggestion. But um, I, I thought that the role was quite yeah. useful because not ever you, you can't keep sharp on everything. No. So so having someone who is hyper sharp on what is a very large issue could be beneficial. But as I said, pra- practice isn't always theory. Yeah, I mean it's. It's, it's the same like you have, you know, the kind of uh, nurse that's the wound specialist and things like that. I think people will pick their area to push things forward. But, yeah, it's the idea of champions in this area, I think, is is the key one, really, just because they, they can then hold the complexity for everyone else. I guess it's always, like all things, nice idea, making it work in reality, has to work for for each unit doesn't it right so we're, we're kind of approaching the end of our of our, our time here so what do you think are the most important takeaways for someone that's listening that maybe isn't isn't up to speed on delirium isn't you know fully engaged in delirium inside the icu world what are what are the things you would want everybody to know I mean, I, I guess there's the things that we haven't talked about. I want people to know that that whole awake in the day, asleep at night side of that environmental stuff, we haven't talked about that at all because we've just been focusing on the psychological. That's just as important. But I say key messages from from what we've talked about. I guess what, what we've said is that many people will experience delirium in ICU for a lot of those people, that delirium will be very threat-based. 
So the job of any ICU clinician is to think about how can I reduce that perception of threat through simple connection, through thinking about how do I approach the patient? How do I make touch feel as safe as possible? How do I tell the patient what's going on for them? Even if they're fully sedated, they're still taking in information about threat. So it's thinking about creating that safety where you can at all stages of the ICU journey. Yeah, I think environment is often an underappreciated thing, that this is a very, very different place for, for the patient to be. You know, they've maybe came from home, ended up in ICU. It's a very different world in ICU. So ensuring there's as much familiarity there as possible, whether that be family or or uh, carers or friends, also pictures and things like this are also very important. It, it's often the forgotten sort of helping factors you can get uh, in trying to involve family as much as you can in terms of the ICU care of delirium because it can be very, you can feel very disempowered as a family member of an ICU experience of you don't want to touch anything because there's lots of wires and lots of lines and lots of everything and you don't want to engage. So you really need to be empowered to give that that sort of familiarity and help. And I think you need to remember that as well. I think that's very important. To put that those in the simple terms of, of psychological first aid, that, that kind of World Health Organization kind of idea is think of that as look, listen, link which is, you know, take a step back and look at what the patient is experiencing as if you're looking at it through their eyes. Listen to what their experiences are, especially as they become more communicative, but listen to the relative too and the visitors too and find any link to the person that makes them the person, not the patient, doesn't it? So anything you can do to link them to daylight, to link them to the day to link them to their loved ones you know to link them to their favorite slipper socks anything it can be to provide I guess again it comes for me down to that sort of key psychological principle of safety and that comfort that all of that familiarity and that orientation brings so yeah. Okay. I'd like to thank you again, uh, Dr. Highfield, for coming on and being a guest. And was there anything else that you wanted to say? I do think we could probably talk about delirium for hours, but I think that's plenty for today. Okay. Thank you everyone for listening and I hope that you enjoyed it.